Thank you, Carly and choir, for leading us in worship today. The lyrics of that beautiful anthem actually connect perfectly with the text we're going to study a little bit later this morning. But uh, before we get there, here at Chapel Street, we do uh, love to share uh, people's stories, um, what God is doing in people's lives who are part of our church family. And today, we have the privilege of uh, hearing and seeing just part of the story of a woman named Abby, who's part of our church family. Let's roll that video. I looked at my daughter and realized that there was only really one option. And I wanted to make sure that she knew what a strong woman looked like and how we were gonna get through this with our faith and with our family. I had found out that my husband had committed suicide on January 22nd, the night before we had been looking for him, he just wasn't acting like himself. So in that moment, I just felt like the rug had kind of been taken out from under me. I felt like we had this life that we had created together and I wasn't sure what was gonna happen. I wasn't sure what the next day was gonna look like. In that moment when you're told what you've lost. I just looked around and the room was full. It was full of love still. My parents were there, my aunt and uncle were there, my closest friends were there, Pastor Jeff was there. That's how God revealed himself to me. He was like, look around at these blessings that you still have. Throughout all of this, I've always wanted Maeve to know that she's loved. And that, that will never, ever change. Even though something was taken from us, she's still loved by, by God, most importantly. I think a lot of times people say that they understand, but there's like moments in the day where you just can't pick up and call somebody. When Maeve was doing this funny dance in the kitchen, I couldn't send a video to my husband. So it's like parts of your day that just become kind of lonely. It's those little moments that become difficult. When I had taken some time off of work after all of this, I tried to work more with Radical Love, which is a ministry that helps with refugee families and seniors in our community. and. I think that helping people was a good way to channel that energy and to not feel so lonely. If I could give something to someone, then it made me not feel so empty. With Radical Love, there's a lot of families that are coming from very tragic situations. So I do feel like a connection to that. I just think about some of the things that these people have gone through and have overcome, and it gives me strength. Community's always been very important to me. I don't think I leaned on my community. I was more of the helper. And the tables really turned this last year. And I needed the help. And I needed the support and the love and the friendship. I was given that back tenfold than what I've ever given anyone.
I don't know how I would have done anything without leaning on God or the community. It's amazing the people that God puts in your life to move you forward on your path. When we share our stories with each other and just live in community with people that are very different from us but are still a lot of the same. We're all mothers, we're all fathers. We all live in an Instagram society where everything is photo touched and airbrushed and everything looks perfect, right? And life is not like that. <laughs> life is very messy. And I think the more that we talk about it, it normalizes that and makes it okay. It's not easy to share the most difficult part of my life. Grief is interesting because you never get over it. You move through it. I don't know how people grieve without God. I can't imagine not having God during something like this. I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. with me for just a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you today for Abby and her story. We thank you for the, your ministry in her life at a time of such loss and grief. Thank you for ministries like Radical Love, like our own care group ministry that helps walk people through these times of grief. Pray that Abby and Maeve will know that they have a place belonging here at Chapel Street and they and people will continue to walk with them through this time in their lives. We know there are others, Lord, too, and so we ask you to also meet them where they are. And by your spirit, may you bring them comfort, the comfort of your presence and your promises in each and every situation. And we thank you for this time together in your name. Amen. Well, how many of you still get a daily newspaper? Anybody still get a daily paper? Well, we now get our, most of our news online. Um, but it's, we don't get a paper anymore, but I kind of miss those days. And what I, I picked up this one, this one just this morning, just realized how long it had been since I picked up a Sunday paper. And one of the things I miss about having a daily paper is reading the comics. I used to go there, maybe not first, but I used to always read the comics, and particularly the Sunday comics, we used to call the funny papers. And over the years, uh, one of the comics I came to enjoy most days was called Dilbert by a guy named Scott Adams. Anybody read Dilbert? Or used to. He's not on anymore because some unfortunate things happened. But Dilbert was funny. He usually pokes fun at the American workplace, uh, in general in American culture, but he hardly ever took on what I would call religious themes. But a few years ago, he did this little three-panel strip. In the first panel, uh, Dilbert is sitting up in bed, and his dog says to him, I decided to start a discount religion. The next frame says, the dog continues, the tithing would only be 5% and I'd let people sin as much as they wanted. And the last frame says, the only problem is that I don't want to spend any time with anyone who would join that sort of religion. <laughs> now, I have no idea uh, what Scott Adams believes, or if he ever went to church or not, but I think there's at least some truth in that little comic strip. Because I think people create their own discount religion all the time. And I think they kind of always have. 
There's a whole book in the New Testament uh, devoted to issues surrounding what Scott Adams calls discount religion. So today we start a new series uh, from Paul's letter to the Colossians that we've entitled or subtitled, The Fullness of God. Now I'm going to um, begin by reading the opening lines of the letter and then give you uh, some background to the letter that matters and then we'll uh, dig into the heart of what we are going to talk about today. So Colossians chapter 1, first two verses. You can look in your Bibles or watch the screen as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me pause there. Uh, this little phrase, in Christ, is Paul's favorite expression to describe the relationship that a follower of Jesus has with uh, the Lord. This is the central identifier of a believer's life. Notice he says, to the faithful ones or to the saints in Colossae, that's where they live, but they are in Christ. That's who they are. We'll talk more about this as we continue in the letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now these first two little verses are just an introduction to an ancient letter, but they also tell us a good bit about the letter. Letters from uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, and you, most of you know this, highly educated man, fiercely passionate man, one-time hater of Christ and all of his followers, who then experienced a dramatic transformation, a conversion experience, when Jesus confronted him in a vision while he was on the road to Damascus. Uh, and through that conversion experience, he becomes Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. That means to the non-Jewish world, which includes, I assume, most of us here this morning. And then Paul spent the rest of his life uh, planting churches and preaching the gospel around the known world, from uh, Galatia and Turkey all the way in the east to Rome uh, all the way in the west. And his letters make up most of our New Testament today. Now, he wrote this letter to the Colossians in about 60 to 62 A.D. or so, so roughly 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, just to put that in a little time perspective, uh, I've been here at Chapel Street, formerly First Baptist of Geneva, for 36 years now, and I can remember clearly things that happened and people from 1993, 30 years ago, and many of you can too. So it's not that long since the great news of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, at the time of this letter, Paul is under a kind of house arrest in Rome, where he was for two years, awaiting trial before the Roman emperor. And during that two years, he wrote what are called the prison epistles, the prison letters. He wrote Colossians, which we are studying now. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, and he wrote Philemon, all during that time of imprisonment. Now, Paul here mentions Timothy, uh, who was a younger man being mentored as a pastor and leader, who actually may have either helped Paul write the letter uh, as Paul dictated it, or possibly been the one to carry the letter back to the Colossian church. Now, a word about the city of Colossae. Colossae was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus in what's called Asia Minor. So you look at, up here at the map, you can see Rome all the way to the left or to the west. You see Greece in the middle with Corinth and Philippi. You see Asia Minor or Galatia, what we call Turkey today, to the right side, to the east. And there, right in the middle, you see Colossae, to the west, you see Ephesus, the great city of Ephesus, and to the east, you see Tarsus, which was Paul's hometown. Um, and then we see uh, Paul had spent some three years earlier in Ephesus, probably the longest time he spent in any one city, as he planted a church there, preached there, and built a church there in Ephesus. This is a photo of me 
uh, at the ruins of ancient Ephesus in 2019 or so. And you can see by just the sheer size of those columns that are still standing after 2,000 years or more that Ephesus was a magnificent Roman city. And we can assume that in its heyday, Colossae would have looked a lot like Ephesus. But today, what the site of Colossae looks like is this. It's simply, uh, it was destroyed by an earthquake in the late first century, and now it's just a mound of earth, what's called a tell, and it's largely unexcavated at this point. But at the time of Paul, Colossae was a significant city. Important because it was on a river, uh, the Lycus River, kind of like the Tri-Cities are located on the Fox River. It was on a river, which made it a major trade route in those days, made Colossae a kind of crossroads, not only for goods and services, but for ideas, particularly for religious ideas and philosophies, which we'll see in a moment. The church in Colossae was planted by a man named Epaphras, who had become a follower of Jesus under Paul's ministry in Ephesus uh, several years before. So he goes off to Colossae, plants a church uh, there, and, and, and that's where he's ministering. Now, why all this background? Why spend any time in the background of an ancient letter? Well, because our faith is not merely a philosophy, like a lot of the things we'll talk about later today and in the series. It's not a philosophy. It's actually a faith rooted in history. And this letter is written to real people who lived in real time, in a real place, and they were dealing with real issues. And just as we live in a real time and a real place, and we deal with real issues. So Paul, evidently Epaphras, has either written to Paul or sent word to him that his church is facing some confusing things and he needs Paul's advice as his mentor. We continue on, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us your love in the Spirit. Now, the first thing I would point out here before we get going is that nearly this entire paragraph that I read, if you look at it in the original language, the Greek, is is like one long run-on sentence. It's like the words are just tumbling out of Paul's mind so fast that he doesn't have time for punctuation. He just puts dashes and continues the thought. And so reading Colossians, if you've tried to do it on your own, I hope you will over the next few weeks, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Paul is just spilling out all this theological truth. Secondly, right at the center, and I put it in a different color, Paul talks about the true message of the gospel. And that implies to us that he's responding to something that might be called the false message of the gospel that he wants to correct. Thirdly, notice that Paul starts this letter with a prayer. He wants the Colossians to know how and what he prays for them. Now remember, Paul is under arrest here. He's under arrest in Rome, awaiting a trial before the emperor of Rome, who became Nero. And we know that Paul eventually was executed by that emperor in about 67 AD. But despite his situation, he's not asking for prayer for himself. There's not even a breath of, hey, please pray for me, I'm in trouble here. He's praying for them. And what he prays for them is that they would be reminded of the true message of the gospel. So that's where we begin. First point today is the truth of the gospel. Now we can chuckle a bit when a cartoon dog wants to create a discount religion. But like I said, I think people do this all the time. 
In fact, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in a, a Starbucks just right down here from the church having coffee, and I overheard accidentally two younger guys talking at a table near me. You know, the tables are pretty close together. And these two 20-something guys were talking. And what I heard was, one guy said to the other, now, uh, I'm not sure um, there's a heaven or not, but I'm pretty certain I'm going to be there. And I kind of had to think about that for a while. Uh, in his book, American Paradox, a researcher named David Myers quotes part of an interview he had with a young professional woman named Sheila. She said, quote, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic or anything. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. And that's extraordinarily common in our culture today. Now, the issue in Colossae tends, seems to have been exactly this type of what is called syncretism. That is a mishmash of philosophies and religions from Judaism to Greek thought and Christian teachings. And the particular problem that Paul seems to be addressing is a set of philosophical ideas generally called Gnosticism. Uh, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And basically, this cluster of teachings taught that matter was evil and spirit was good. Now, that doesn't sound terrible to us, but listen to the implications. Matter is evil, spirit is good. Therefore, God could not have created the world because the world is matter and it's evil. God could not have become flesh because flesh is matter and evil. Therefore, Jesus could not be God. Secondly, it taught that Jesus was just one of many intermediaries between God and human beings. Thirdly, since Jesus was not the unique Son of God, He could not be the true source of salvation. God could only be found through secret, mystical, spiritual knowledge that only the Gnostic teachers could teach. And lastly, since God is spirit, He's not concerned about our physical lives. Therefore, what we do in and with our bodies simply doesn't matter to God. That's only a few of the things they taught. So Paul begins by reminding the Colossian believers of the truth of the gospel. And he says at least five things here about the gospel. Let me tick through them. First, the gospel is about Jesus. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there were many religious and spiritual truths floating around in the ancient world. There was not only the philosophy of Gnosticism, the Greeks had their mythology. They had Zeus and Apollo and Hermes. <laughs> Excuse me, the Romans had their mythology, Jupiter and Mars and Bacchus. There was no lack of gods, small g. So evidently, Epaphras goes to Paul for help because these young believers are being confused by things they're hearing. They're being confused by those who were teaching that Jesus was one of just many spiritual truths you could pick from in the religious spiritual smorgasbord. Very much like our world today. Recent research shows that more and more Americans, in fact, the dramatic increase in, uh, in the last generation of Americans who consider themselves to be spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That means they're not affiliated with any particular church tradition. Now, most people in our culture would put Jesus, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of religious guys, of spiritual guys. You know, there'd be Jesus, there'd be Muhammad, there'd be Buddha, there'd be Oprah, there'd like be the universe. <laughs> I've actually seen people post on Facebook, you know, the universe wants me to do this. Or the universe has told me, I just want to ask them a question, what, what, who, what do you mean? Who, 
The universe is just, it's just a thing. How about the creator of the universe? So Jesus is seen as just one of many places human beings can look to for spiritual inspiration or guidance. But at the very center of this letter, Paul makes the astonishing claim, it was astonishing then, it's still astonishing now, that Jesus is different. That Jesus rises above all these other ideas and philosophies and people. Paul will hammer away at two things, the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. We'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead. So Paul begins by reminding him of the gospel, the good news of salvation is not in ideas, not in philosophy, it's in Christ Jesus, period. Secondly, he reminds them uh, that the gospel produces love. Verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The phrase for all God's people is literally for the saints, for the church. Our current cultural narrative says that Christian churches, including us, are filled with people who are arrogant, judgmental, even hateful toward other people groups. Paul says, no, 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 no. The churches, to follow, people to follow Jesus are, are to be filled with love. They're to love one another first and foremost. The love for all God's people. Paul's simply saying the natural result of the gospel is love. First for the community of believers, the church, and as we'll see later, also for those outside the church. Thirdly, he says the gospel offers hope. Verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Uh, last week, on Easter Sunday, I made a reference to something that Rachel Gilson, who visited us uh, a while back, said when she was here. She said that to put your faith in Christ is to bet your life on the resurrection. I think that that's what Paul's talking about here to the Colossians. That is, we all put our hope in something. All human beings bet their lives on something. In fact, it's the capacity to hope that makes us essentially human. We invest our hope in all kinds of things, in education, in wealth, in science, in political platforms or candidates, in our children, in our favorite sports team. But not all hope is the same. To say, for example, I hope the Cubs win, or I hope my child gets into this university, is different than saying my hope is in the resurrection. Because one is a type of wishful thinking. It's okay to have wishful thinking, but it's not grounded in anything. The other is anchored in historical fact. The hope of the gospel is unconditional and certain, Paul says, because it's anchored in a real person and in real history. Fourthly, Paul says the gospel bears fruit. He writes, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Now, why would he say this to the Colossians? I think because he wants them to know they're not alone. They were in their little community, surrounded by a pagan world. They had to wonder, are we the only ones? Are, are we by ourselves on an island? He's saying, no, no, no. The gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. He means that Jews and Greeks and Romans and pagans are all responding to the good news of Jesus. Now we today, right where we are, often hear that the church is in decline in America. That fewer and fewer people are committed to a local church. And that's true. You can look at the numbers. But that does not mean the gospel is not bearing fruit. 
I shared some of these stories with you a few months ago, but last August I had a chance to travel to Nepal on the other side of the world with a ministry called the Timothy Initiative that we support as a church. We were able to visit four or five brand new churches, uh, each with 15 to 20 brand new believers that came out of uh, Hindu and Buddhist traditions. I took this picture sitting about eight feet from this woman because I could see the joy on her face. Now, that ministry is in the process right now in Nepal, a place where it's illegal to proselytize. It's illegal to evangelize in Nepal. The, pen, pen, uh, the penalty is three years in prison. But right now, they are in the process of training hundreds of church planters. We met probably 30 or 40 church planters, but there's hundreds being planted, uh, being trained to plant thousands of churches in the next few years, and their goal is to plant one new church in every village in Nepal. And there are 90,000 villages in Nepal. And that's only one country where they're involved. There are ministries like this going on all over the world. Just because we don't see it here doesn't mean it's not happening. The gospel is exploding in parts of the world far from us. In fact, 70% of the world's believers now live outside of North America and Europe. 70%. It won't be long before they send missionaries here. Point of interest, uh, one of the things that makes the Christian gospel absolutely unique is that it's not ethnocentric. It's not bound by a culture or by a language. For example, over 90% of Muslims live in the Middle East. Over 95% of Hindus live in India. But Christianity has spread almost equally between North America, South America, Africa, and Asia. It spreads across all those barriers because it's not defined by a culture or a language or by ethnicity or even by religious practice. It's defined by God's grace. And that's the last thing Paul says. The gospel is God's grace. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Grace, as we all know, is undeserved favor. Grace is a gift. And grace is what makes the Christian gospel absolutely different and unique among all the religions of the world. Every other known religion works basically the same way. Human beings have got to earn their way into the favor of the gods or God and hope that they receive blessing and favor and, and paradise. The Christian gospel is the opposite. Grace comes first. It's not what we do for God. It's what God has already done for us, and everything else grows out of that grace. So Paul reminds the Colossians and us of the truth of the gospel. Second thing we see in this first paragraph is the life of the gospel. Life of the gospel. Years ago, my father pastored a small uh, church in central Florida, and uh, he told the story of um, one Friday afternoon, um, a man in this church happened to be an elder, was on his home, way home from work. I think the air conditioner in his car was broken down. It was super hot, sticky. He was sweating in his car. It was a traffic jam. It was just a bad afternoon, end of a long week. And um, some guy pulled out uh, rudely and cut him off in traffic. And he just kind of had had enough, so he honked his horn at the guy who cut him off. And the guy gestured to him out the window. You can guess maybe the gesture. And so he honked again. The guy gestured again. And so that went on for a while until the guy in front motioned, like, pull over. Let's deal with this. So he pulls over to the side of the road, which, by the way, never do that. <laughs> he, he pulls over, two cars pull over to the side of the road, hot Florida afternoon, 
and these two angry men get out yelling at each other, and they challenge each other to a fist fight right there on the side of the road. They don't actually fight, but it was a pretty ugly scene. So anyway, fast forward to Sunday morning. at church where it was a communion Sunday. And so this particular elder, it was his turn to serve communion. So at that point in service, he takes the, the little plate of bread and he's walking back through the congregation serving the plates of bread. He gets about three quarters of the way back and the first guy sitting in the pew <laughs> is that guy. He leans down, they make eye contact and they both know there's a problem, right? So they finish and to the guy's credit, Immediately when the service ended, he went straight to my dad's office and said, Pastor, we have a problem. And he told him the story. He was embarrassed. We told him the story. And eventually, my dad called them both in, and uh, they ended up becoming great friends over the next couple of years. But that's a great one of my favorite stories. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all, the, all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Two things I want you to see here. First, he talks about a life filled with knowledge. Filled with knowledge. When I was in college, um, some of my basketball teammates and I would play a game on long bus rides. Uh, someone would name an athlete from the past, any sport, and the game was if you could remember what uniform number that athlete wore. You want to play? Uh, Willie Mays, 24. Surprised you didn't get that one. Joe DiMaggio, 5. Jerry West, 44. I was really good at that game. I can go on and on and on uh, my, because my brain is weirdly filled with that kind of stuff. And you could really only play the game if you had that kind of knowledge. Well, that's what's going on here. The Gnostics said that you can really only play the spiritual game. You can only really get to know God if you have special knowledge, and we can teach you that special knowledge. But Paul says, be filled with knowledge, but not that kind of knowledge. The word he uses here is epigenosis, which means knowledge, but more than knowing facts, it means no, no, not, not just knowing information, it carries a sense of depth, experiential knowledge, like knowing a person. So he's saying... You don't just need to know Willie Mays' number. You need to know Willie Mays. Paul is saying, yes, you want knowledge, but not some mystical knowledge available to you only through philosophers and theologians, really smart people, but rather the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding of the Spirit. Now, God's will, in Paul's mind, was not the way we often talk about it now. It wasn't knowing God's will for what job you should take or what house you should buy. Those are important, but that's only like a small little percentage of God's will. Most of God's will, Paul gives us in this letter. He's talking about God's will that we know Jesus, that we identify ourselves in him, and that we walk with him. And that leads to the second point we see here. He talks about the life of the gospel as a life that is worthy. A life that is worthy. The reason that elder went to my dad after that altercation and after that communion service, is that he knew that behavior was not worthy of Jesus. It wasn't worthy of the one who had given his life to redeem his soul. Contrary to the teachings of Gnosticism, our behavior matters to God. How we live matters. Paul says to the Colossians, bear fruit in every good work. Now, this is not a kind of... Um, 
of measuring stick of a kind of legalism like proving yourself worthy to be loved by God. No, no, it's the opposite. It's saying you have already been made righteous by his blood sacrifice for you. Therefore, be who you are. Live the way he's made you to be. Be worthy of his sacrifice by living how he's called you to live. So being filled with the knowledge of God's will is to produce good fruit in the way we live. He's just talking about spiritual maturity. And the third thing we see in this opening paragraph is the power of the gospel. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might that you may have great endurance and patience. Now notice here, Paul is recognizing that these young believers in Colossae needed strength. They needed power to endure, to stand firm in an aggressive pagan culture. And we need the same endurance today. Verse 12, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So where does the strength to endure come from? I want to point out three things. First, he says, from the one who has qualified you. The one who has qualified you. You don't have to qualify yourself to earn God's grace. Uh, you, we often hear uh, you know, jokes uh, that start like, uh, you know, so-and-so gets to the, the, the gates of heaven and Peter asks them a question. You know, why do you, why do you deserve to be in heaven? In fact, you've asked most people on the street, you ask a lot of churchgoers after a service, how are you going to get into God's heaven? And people will immediately say, well, I, 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 did, I did this, and I was trying to be good, and I tried to do more good. No, 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 Paul says. Any answer that starts with I is the wrong answer. The answer is nothing. I bring nothing. I bring nothing that qualifies me. He has qualified me. That's what Paul says. He has qualified you, and that's good news. You don't have to qualify yourself. You can't qualify yourself. Secondly, the one who has rescued us from darkness, it means to snatch out of danger and bring back to safety and peace. And thirdly, he says, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been purchased. We've been bought back. What I notice here is Paul suddenly switches to talking in the past tense. He mentions three things that have already happened. You have been qualified, you have been rescued, you have been redeemed. See, these young Colossian believers were being told that Jesus wasn't enough. They were being told they needed extra special knowledge, they needed to practice other religious rituals to be good with God. And Paul says, no, no, no. You already have everything you need in Jesus. You might remember uh, a story that unfolded in Dallas a few years ago. There was a police officer named Amber Geiger who had been convicted of shooting an unarmed black man in his apartment. Uh, she claimed she had mistaken his apartment for her apartment and thought he was an intruder. She was eventually convicted uh, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. At the victim's impact at a victim impact hearing, members of the deceased man's family were invited and given the opportunity to speak, which happens all the time. But the man's younger brother, the man who was killed, 
had a younger brother who was just 18 years old. And this is what he said to the, to the shooter. He said, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that my brother would want you to do. And then he asked the judge if he could give the convicted killer a hug. Now that story sparked all kinds of reaction, mostly because of the, the racially charged aspect of the story. But the strongest act reactions were astonishment. How, how, could he, how, how could he do that? How could he offer forgiveness? Many were offended. She doesn't deserve to be forgiven. She deserves to be put in prison. But that young man evidently knew something. Did she qualify for that forgiveness? No. Could she rescue herself from the darkness of her own guilt and shame? No. Could she forgive and redeem herself? No. That's what the younger brother knew. He knew she needed one thing. One person. She needed Jesus, because he is grace. He is the gospel. I hope you continue reading Colossians on your own. Try to read through the letter maybe once a week or a chapter a week as we go through this series. Uh, you can follow right along. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this ancient letter. And like all Paul's letters, they, they, they are ancient to a people who lived in a different time and place, but they're also very contemporary. Because that's how your word is. Your word still speaks. So we thank you for the reminder that our faith is not based on how much philosophy or theology we know, but on a person who knows us and loves us. A person that we can get to know. And as we read and study this letter, remind us and teach us by your spirit that your will is that we know Jesus, that we live in him, and that we walk with him. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you're newer to Chapel Street and came prepared to give today, but aren't sure how we do that here at this church, uh, we do not pass plates anymore, but we have a collection box in the back. Uh, you're, if you brought a check or cash, you can drop it in that box. And many of our folks uh, also give online. Just go to our website. It'll show you how to do that. But thank you so much for your generosity. And as you leave today, if you're interested in the upcoming Burt Kettinger concert here on April 29th, there should be some information cards back there. Pick up one. You can use it to plan your calendar and to invite a friend as well. Receive now today's benediction. And we go now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has qualified us, rescued us, and redeemed us, that we may live lives worthy of him. Amen. Have a great day.